Welcome back to the program. Someone once observed that they saw a snake and a vulture having sex in Washington and thought that it was just business as usual. Fitzgerald said that the rich were different because they had money. Politicians are different usually because they have more insecurities. The simple fact is that most politicians and inhabitants of our nation's capital are just flesh and blood human beings. And yes, they may be different than you and I, but most of them do care about the work they do. In fact, some care too much. Or as the late great journalist Richard Ben Kramer once wrote, that feeling that you could make a difference is like a drug. My guest today is also a great journalist who's been giving us great insights into the power players in Washington for many years for the New York Times Magazine. He is Mark Leibovich. He's the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of the previous book, This Town. And it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Leibovich back to this program to talk about his newest work, Citizens of the Green Room. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here. How are things in uh, beautiful California? Well, things, in ca- things, things in California are good. I want to talk about this idea that political journalism can also be entertaining journalism. And it's an idea that, that sort of is a different notion sometimes for people. Talk a little about that. Well, I mean, I think politics, I mean, is in many ways it's kind of numbed down to to fit the, the very hyper-cautious environment of, of today's news cycle. Um, People are very, you know, scared, frankly. I think rightly scared of how the media will treat them. But I think one of the, the there's just a lot of room for a human dimension and, and really hopefully a, a way that can kind of bridge the gap between who these people really are, who they try to be, and the kind of leaders they would be. And, and I think that's, I think, I think a lot of reporters have a pretty narrow view of what that means. And I think that, that that's dictated by not having a lot of time and space to, to, to really do the, the fuller treatments that I think readers deserve. And one of the things I've been lucky to do over the years is actually just have the time and space and, and also the access to these people to, to really um, hopefully you know, enrich the, the picture a little bit. And um, if it's entertaining, all the better. And it is that human dimension that really does change the dynamic. I mean, the thing that comes to mind beyond some of the great pieces that, that you've written is something like that the documentary about Mitt Romney that came out after the campaign. People saw it and thought, gee, he actually is a human being. If people had the opportunity to see the human dimension of some of these people, I think that our politics, or at least the public's perception of our politics, would be different. I think so. I mean, but at the same time, you wonder if they were to let you know more a more sort of revealing self come out, I mean, would people just be pouncing on them and tweeting things and seizing on things out of context and making a huge deal out of out of that? And, and, and I, um, yeah, I mean, I have great sympathy for politicians in this day and age. I, I think I know why they have become so uh, lobotomized in some ways, because there's just always going to be a peanut gallery out there that's going to um, really sort of run with it. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to be preachy here, but I do think that, that the media and, frankly, politicians in general, I mean, it would be great if there was some kind of greater understanding that allowed for, for more frailty, uh, more openness, more honesty. But but right now, the world is not in a terribly thoughtful place as far as uh, the political media establishment goes. Is it your sense that it has been ever thus? Or was, was there a certain tipping point with respect to all of this? Your former colleague, Matt Bai, talks about it with respect to the personal lives of politicians in his new book, Talk about it in in a more general sense, in terms of politicians really keeping that guard up in so many areas. Yeah, I mean, 
It, it is. I mean, I, I've seen a bunch of memo, like campaign strategy memos over the years of, of what candidates are, are expected to go through. I mean, campaign managers will put them together and, you know, have like literally dozens or hundreds of pages in which they say, you know, you have to spend 80% of your time fundraising. Uh, you must always say these 10 things over and over and over again. And I, first of all, I don't know why anyone goes through with it after reading a memo like this. But um, no, I mean, there is a... <laughs> No one really knows what the rules are. I mean, it, again, you have this anarchy in the peanut gallery sometimes that you just don't know it's going to blow up on you. And, and so I think the default is, is, is hyper-caution, and it's probably, not, um, you know, it's probably not unwarranted. So I don't know. I mean, I, as a reporter, I, mean, I, I have a bias, and that's towards anything that, that seems authentic and anything that I think is authentic. So... Um, you know, and, and if it's, again, entertaining is always good too. But I also want to help people understand what kind of leaders that these uh, these figures are going to be. The one theme that seems to run through so many of these profiles, everything from politicians to to journalists, people like Chris Matthews, and and, and you know, radio hosts like Glenn Beck. The one constant theme seems to be a deep seated insecurity in all of these people. Very, very much so. I mean, I think. That is, I mean, it, it, what's interesting about Glenn Beck and Chris Matthews, I mean, it, what's refreshing about them in a way is that it's pretty, pretty, it's pretty front and center. I mean, it's something that they reveal pretty plainly. Um, I think most politicians, I think most people in media are pretty insecure. I think once you get into a game and where, affirm, where affirmation is really what, what you look for every single day, you're written about, you're, you're applauded, you're, you're jeered, um, you know, voters render a verdict on you every two or four years six years it's um you know i think it makes you a different person i mean i've seen it over and over again with a lot of colleagues who have gone from print to television especially um they change and not always true but i think when you go into a medium where frankly looks are much more important where um things like ratings things like the very subjective um critics uh, criticisms are, are going to define you day in and day out i mean it can't help but make you um, a different human being. One of the other interesting aspects is, and you talk about this, and it really gets to the heart of the title in terms of Citizens of the Green Room, the whole industry, more than a cottage industry, but a large industry that's grown up around supporting these insecurities and, and creating the kind of environment for these people we've been talking about. That, that's a great, great point. I mean, I think, look, the entire, you could argue that the, like, like a good portion of the entire Washington, D.C. economy is built on catering to these insecurities and to building people up and to getting a palatable message out and to selling something. And that's, I think, one of the reasons Washington, um, you know, can be so demoralizing because basically this is an empty calorie um, process. And, and, you know, it's funny, people ask me, uh, in in a vein to what we're talking about, people ask me, who are the most secure politicians you ever watched or written about. And I always come up with two names, and they could not be more dissimilar, and they're Barack Obama and Dick Cheney. Uh, these are two of the most self-contained, sort of sure-in-themselves people I have ever watched. And, um, you know, Ch- Dick Cheney is obviously a, a very divisive figure, but I've always admired, to some degree, his complete unwillingness to play the game. And, um, and President Obama, too. I mean, I think he's, he's a very unneedy person compared to most politicians, and I think that's probably hurt him because he doesn't recognize the neediness that maybe other politicians on, you know, on the Hill or, or wherever require. And I think that, that in a way, in a weird way, that, that's actually what made Bill Clinton 
so effective. He actually understood insecurity and actually had a greater compassion for it than maybe um, Barack Obama does. With Bill Clinton, it was almost the exact opposite. I mean, he needed that affirmation. He needed almost to touch and to be touched as if he was some kind of alien from another planet to keep going. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you, there are kind of politicians who you just see drawing energy and drawing that um, sort of sustenance from, from just being adored in a room and the applause and the handshakes and the hugs and stuff. And then there are some who you get a sense that it's just sapping them as they go and they just can't wait to get back to the green room and their big canister of Purell, right? So <laughs> it, it's very, uh, it, it's obviously, it's obviously there are a lot of gray areas here, but I think it's something you see in a lot of people and, and you know, politicians, I think, who enjoy it. Um, you know, can be more fun, but it also in some ways makes them suspect. There's also the degree to which some of them enjoy it a lot. And in many ways, those are the ones that, that kind of rise to the top. I mentioned, you know, Richard Ben Kramer in our introduction. And yeah. the qualities that he talks about in what it takes, and really for those that do rise to the highest levels, and what they have to give to that. It, it is an inhuman process. I mean, it's, it's funny. I, I, so Chris Christie is someone who was in Citizens of the Green Room, but I also profiled him for the Times Magazine that's going to run on um, on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And he said at the end, I mean, look, losing isn't the problem. Winning is the problem. I mean, it is an insane, insane job. And um, I don't know if I want it. I mean, Richard Ben Kramer, again, I think, like you said, I mean, he asked that question both, you know, quite um, trenchantly, but also, I mean, he elaborated on it in, in the pages of what it takes. But I, I think... I don't think people actually do ask themselves that. I think I think a lot of times people figure, hey, I get a lot of TV ratings and um, you know I get on cable a lot, so maybe I'll get elected president. And they don't really think through what that means, both as a candidate and and you know in many cases, God forbid, if they get elected. Well, it really reminds you of, and I don't know if you remember it, the the Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, where at the very end, the candidate Redford turns to to his handler, Peter Boyle. And at the, after getting elected in this remarkable election, says, what do I do now? I know. It's a great, great line. I've heard politicians have um, quoted that to me over and over and over again over the years. Um, it's true. I mean, I remember covering, I mean, I just writing about the uh, Obama campaign in 2008 and just watching him travel across the country and just being greeted with these euphoric and huge crowds. And, and he was, you know, he was really on. I mean, he was a great candidate. And then I remember the night he won in Grand Park in Chicago and just watching him walk on stage after the election had been called for him and just seeing, almost literally seeing a weight um, on his shoulder. I mean, his face was different. It was just a whole different feel around how he moved and how he spoke and how his face kind of rested. And, and it was, um, I just remember, I don't know if I was projecting, but it was, it was like something completely different had come over him, and um, it was clearly a new chapter that was starting. The subtitle of, of Citizens of the Green Room is Profiles in Courage and Self-Delusion. We see a lot of self-delusion. Do you see a lot of courage? Sometimes. Um, not enough. I mean, I remember uh, when I was um, promoting my last book, This Town, I, I was doing a, um, a, a talk in, in St. Louis uh, at a law school, and it was right in the midst of the government shutdown last year. And people were just, they're, they're throwing their hands up. I and mean, there was such disgust with the government. And, and it was really, really, um, I mean, it was just so demoralizing. And John Danforth, who's a former senator mm -hmm. who's from Missouri, he moved back to, to St. Louis. He was in the audience. And people just kept asking me, what can we do? What can we do? And I was like, I don't know, Senator, you have any ideas? And 
And he looked up and he just said pretty simply, I just wish people were, were, were less afraid of losing. And you do realize, I remember that was a very telling quote. I mean, I, you realize that self-perpetuation is such a huge part of what people um, concern themselves with in, in D.C. And, and that involves just getting elected and not losing. And, and that means pleasing your party leadership and your fundraisers and your party base. And, and none of these things are, are recipes for courage in any sense. There's also the fear of losing after you've been elected to something. You know, I don't know how we got on, keep getting back to movies today, but there's a wonderful line in, in, Wall, in the movie Wall Street. One of the characters says, the only thing worse than not having money is not having money after you've had it. And in many ways, the same <laughs> is true of power and politics. I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true. I mean, you see, in, in, I mean, living in Washington, you see these ghosts just sort of walking around, people who just don't leave. And, um, People, I mean, the founders envisioned a government of short-timers. I mean, people who would stay and serve and then return to their communities and and go back to their farms or their general stores or their medical practices or whatever. And, and uh, what we've created in this world is, is just this permanent class of, of hangers-on. And, and frankly, it pays very, very well. I mean, the part of this economy we're talking about is is people paying former lawmakers to do whatever it is they do. And, and there's never been more money in politics, and corporations have never put more money and commitment into trying to influence politics. And um, that makes it a very full employment place. Uh, this is the wealthiest metropolitan area in the United States, and I think that that's one of the reasons for it. Talk a little bit about getting these people that we've been talking about, these politicians, the people that you write about in Citizens of the Green Room, getting them to talk to you. Because there's always the sense that on the one hand, as we've been talking about, they're very guarded, they're very on message, but there's always an element of, of wanting to say more, of them wanting to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm very grateful that they do. I mean, in many cases they do. They don't always. Um, and um, I don't think for a second that they talk to me because they think I'm so charming or so safe. I mean, I think it's because I'm, um, I'm attached to a major news organization, and they think for some reason that it's in their best interest. But I, I do think that um, I, I think people are usually the most illustrative advocates for themselves. And um, I think politicians in some ways, maybe it's this narcissism or vanity or, or self-delusion, but a lot of pe people think that they can be the one that actually um, seduces the reporter, whether it's mm. me or whoever, into actually writing you know, the true and proper story that, uh, that, that renders their greatness. But I don't know. I mean, I think it's always challenging to, to I don't know if I win the trust of people, but at least get in the door. And um, I've been pleasantly surprised at how how successful I've been in doing it, but um, I still, I mean, Governor Christie, it's funny, I was just with him for the story I was doing, and, and he said, I read your last book, and I thought it was really entertaining, but my one question is, why does anyone talk to you? <laughs> and I said, well, you tell me, Governor, we've been sitting here for three hours, so um, he goes, yeah, it's true, and then he blamed his communications director. <laughs> How much does money play a role in all of this? If you took the money out of politics or the big money out of politics, would it change anything in the equation that we're talking about? I think it would change everything. I mean, I think I think money in politics is is the single biggest issue that um, you know, it sort of dictates how how our government and, and how our politics are, are made these days. And um, yeah, I mean, you do realize. I mean, I, I see, so seeing like a, I remember Michelle Nunn, who was a Democratic. Uh, mm -hmm candidate for, for Senate in Georgia this cycle. Uh, she lost, but uh, I remember seeing a memo that, that her 
campaign managers prepared and just saying, look, you have to fundraise, 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 fundraise. It should be 80% of your time. And, and um, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, once you're in office, I mean, you're going to have to spend a few hours a day cold calling or sometimes more than a few hours a day cold calling and fundraising. And it affects everything about how business is done. And um, I think something needs to be done about it personally, but I don't think that there's a lot of energy in, in either chamber to actually get something like that done. What does John McCain understand about the way this relationship between journalism and Washington works that, that few others really understand in the same way? What makes him the senior citizen of the Green Room? Well, I mean, he's there all the time, for one. I mean, he is, I mean, he, he's, he's, I think he has the record for having been on the most Sunday shows right. ever. I mean, meet the press, certainly. And no, he, he is the ultimate citizen of the green room. I mean, John McCain loves this life. I mean, this is sort of his air. I mean, he, uh, he loves being a public person. I remember writing about him, um, last year around this time. And we went to a hockey game out in Phoenix and, and we were walking through the concourse. And I, I remember just watching him and, being struck by how he fully expected every single person to know who he was and he would acknowledge everyone or try to and and it was just it was an odd experience of someone who was just not only on but who was sort of defined by his onness and by his publicness and um, I don't know if that's an understanding or not but he does seem suited to it and in many ways it sort of keeps him awake what surprises you the most finally about some of these politicians um, besides the fact that they talk to me at all, I, mean, <laughs> I guess what surprises me most is, um, I, I think, well, actually, well, this, I don't know, I, I think that this might surprise people, I and mean, I think most of them are in it for the right reasons, I think most of them are, um, are quite smart, I think some of them are quite not smart, but I think most of them really, you know, do have a pretty good reason to be elected. I, I think what surprises me is, is, you know, sometimes when you get them and they will admit to you, um, that the publicness of their being sort of defines them. And I remember Elizabeth Warren, I've only met her once, um, but I met her at a book party um, maybe about six months ago. And, and she had, you know, she's sort of like a, a rock star and certainly among the liberal circles. And I said, so what's different now that you're like a rock star as opposed to an anonymous, um, you know, a relatively anonymous figure as you were a few years ago? And she goes, you know what the biggest thing is? I can no longer send food back in a restaurant because people are going to notice and then someone's probably going to write about it. I used to always send food back in restaurants. And first of all, I didn't know that about her. And um, I said, you know, I, it was, but you're right, though. I mean, you always have to worry about how something might look on, I don't know if that would be on the front page of the New York Times, but, um, you know, everything getting into the public domain. So I, I, I think part of what Citizens of the Green Room is about is, is how that experience um, changes people, warps people, and, and in many ways puts people, you know, in a very, very out-of-touch plane with, with the people they're representing. And that's true of the journalists that become celebrities, too. I remember Tom Brokaw once it, talking about always being so careful about how much he left as a tip in restaurants because he didn't want to huh. shortchange and didn't want a story to get out about it. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, I think that's something you probably would find with a lot of public people. I mean, Tom Brokaw... I, you know, I am unabashedly a huge fan of. I mean, I, I go after the media quite a bit, but, but Tom is someone that um, I've been privileged to get to know, and I, I think he gets it. I mean, he gets the silliness of it all. And I remember I was in a Starbucks with him once, and, um, and you know, it was people just kept coming up to him and, and saying hi, and, you know, he could not, we couldn't have a conversation. And finally he looked at me and said, you know, it's kind of a pain being an American treasure. 
<laughs> and I was like, what a great moment. I, it made me, made me like him even more. So, but no, it's true. You, you can never really relax. Mark Leibovich, his book at Citizens of the Green Room, profiles in courage and self-delusion. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. This was great. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.